The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On the afternoon of September 8, 1890, two men were canoe fishing in the Lillooet Slough near Pitt River, when suddenly a shot rang out. As they went across the water to investigate, they saw a man of about 60 coming out of the bush with a shotgun in hand. One of them approached him, but he gave no answer. Instead, he walked towards the canoe and prepared his gun. Without a word, he took aim and fired. The bullet met its mark, and one man fell to his death. The remaining passenger of the canoe jumped ashore and asked the shooter why he had targeted his companion. He answered that he did not want any persons to go up there. Then he reloaded his shotgun and once again took aim. The shooter's name was Slumuk, and he would eventually be tried and hanged on the gallows, paying the ultimate penalty for his crime. But not long after his death, rumors surfaced that he had discovered a lucrative and hidden stash of gold in the mountains, said to be worth billions, and that just before he was hanged, he muttered these words as a warning to anyone who dared to search for his gold mine. Nika Memlus, mein Memlus. Loosely translated from the Chinook language, the words mean, when I die, the mine dies. A single bullet sparked this 150-year-old mystery. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumuk's Gold, Episode 3, Trouble in Paradise. I grew up in the shadow of the Pacific Ranges. Those are the mountains that run from the Fraser River, just southeast of Vancouver, all the way up to the Yukon in Alaska. It's a natural paradise of forests and glaciers that have captivated many over the years because of the secrets and treasures they hold within. This is the backdrop to Slumok's story. I'm your guide, along with a mountaineer, a truth seeker, and a way shower that make up the rest of Dead Man's Curse's team as we investigate Slumok's life, walk in his footsteps, and if we're lucky, find a little of that infamous gold. If you're joining me for the first time, I recommend you go back to the beginning, because in previous episodes, we shared the events of September 8th, 1890, as told in the newspaper articles and court records. Slumok was accused of shooting Louis B and then fleeing. His trial took mere days and the jury reached a guilty verdict in just 15 minutes, even though no witnesses for the defense were called or testified. In the end, Slumok was hanged for murder. But as we told you last time, official accounts don't tell the whole story because the lake and the silent mountain surrounding it are the only witnesses that remain. They hold the truth behind the legend, the curse, and the gold. Adam Palmer, the expert mountaineer on the team, says that Slumok's connection to the land holds the key to unlocking the curse. The lakes, the mountains, every, everything to do with searching for, you know, and uncovering the truth behind the legend, behind the person, it is all to do with this land, and it always has been. Everything that you need to know is on the land. 
So that's what we're focusing on today, because I've been there. I've walked along the same reedy shores and slept under the same stars as Slumunk did in the late 1800s. Remember, the Pit Lake region is the scene of the crime. Pit Lake is a place like no other and has one of the largest tidal lakes in the world. The lake appears to breathe as water levels rise and fall up to three feet each day. On a map, it looks like a hook or an S as it snakes its way down the Pacific Ranges about 20 kilometers from north to south. The vast shorelines are a contrast between steep cliffs and tumbling streams, dotted with secret coves and islands, often with sandy beaches for swimming or fishing. At its widest point, it's only 4.5 kilometers wide. This long, narrow lake flows into the Pacific Ocean through the Pitt River as it meets with the larger Fraser River into the Strait of Georgia. It is only accessible by road on the south end, where what was once marshland has been filled in for agricultural use. Yet, the rest of the long lake sits in a deep glacial valley surrounded by rugged terrain and wilderness, home to bears and cougars. It's like the land that time forgot. It's the kind of place that draws people in, seeking their fortune in the wild. Sometimes, they don't come back. More importantly, this is also the home of the Catesy people of the lower Fraser Valley. Don Froze is our resident way-shower. He guides and protects us on our expedition on Dead Man's Curse. And he's like a father in many ways to all of us on the team, but in particular, Taylor Starr. Don is Taylor's dad. My uh, Homach name is Pakyakula, Don Froze. I'm um, from Skalakul, which means around the bend, Seabird Island, part of Stalo Nation, people of the river. I'm a hunter. I'm a carver. My mentor is Kutwimaluk. I'm a husband. <laughs> my wife, Kulathladia, is uh, my best friend. He's also a storyteller and a natural-born leader, not to mention one of the biggest blessings on this adventure. He says this story is about a man truly connected to this land. Well, our uh, traditional connection to the land and the water and the air that we breathe is um, is our teachings that are fundamental. And uh, throughout Turtle Island, there's there's uh, a strong current of common teachings when it comes to the importance of being connected to the land. And, and that connection um, equals life and quality of life. A big part of it is the life journey of learning to be connected to nature. You get to that point where you hear nature whisper in your ears the secrets of the Creator that help to guide you through this rough terrain and, and some of these serious conditions that we can get involved with. When your ears are open to that, then you're going to be okay. We're never alone. We're surrounded by nature, and we're surrounded by ancestors. So in any given story, you've got all these little snapshots, and then all of a sudden you see the big picture. Everything's got a spirit in nature, so, you know, it's, it's, it's alive and breathing and it's been created and placed there for, for a reason. So we're, we're part of that creation as human beings. My search has not been looking on a map and plotting where to go. My search has been based on nature's indicators. So. My teachings are not based on a calendar. 
My teachings are based on nature's calendar. Slumak's life ran parallel to European expansion in the region. This is the land where Slumak hid for weeks after he shot Louis B. It's also where he lived for most of his life. The forces that shaped the approaching American Revolutionary War were just converging on the East Coast in the 1770s. In the Pacific Northwest, the first wave of smallpox killed at least 30% of the population. The disease was first introduced to the Americas by Europeans, and First Nations people had no natural immunity to it. By 1774, the first documented European explorations of the islands off the Pacific coast of what is now British Columbia began. With overland expeditions from eastern Canada across the treacherous Rocky Mountains reaching the area two decades later. In 1805, Simon Fraser, a fur trader and explorer of Scottish descent and American birth, laid the groundwork for the mercantile district of New Caledonia, named for his ancestral homeland of Scotland. The Fraser River is in turn named for him. The British finally established a fur trading post along the Fraser River at Fort Langley in 1827. This is an important date because if we're to believe the press got Slumak's age right, he would have possibly been a boy approaching nine or 10 years old at the time. Fur trading and logging were the mainstays of the nascent European colony in the region. The vast and powerful Hudson Bay Company had dominion over the entire region of the Pacific Northwest, covering what are now the U.S. states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, and yet-to-exist Canadian province of British Columbia. Instead, the area was called the Columbia Department and centered on the Columbia River, which was jointly occupied by Britain and the U.S. The European population of the entire district was less than a couple thousand. The Hudson Bay Company, as de facto government in the region, made and broke numerous treaties with the First Nations over land rights and access to resources which had historically been seen as communal and belonging to no one. Don says the settlers missed out on the opportunity of learning about the people who had lived in the area for millennia before they arrived. The area where Slumuk lived, it would have been um, like nine, nine dialects of the same language. Everybody's teachings varied uh, slightly when it came to the land because the land offers different resources in different places. And even though, you know, our, our teaching with land and resources is, is wealth is found in how, not how much you own, but how much you share and how much you, you know, give to others. That's, that's the, the measure of wealth when it comes to, and that's an important teaching of, of, um, of living on the land. Now, if you're getting the sense that before settlers arrived, everyone lived in harmony or in some sort of utopia, let me dispel that notion. Don says the Katsi people of the area would often be raided by neighboring nations from Vancouver Island. They would come up here primarily to, to take dried fish and take, uh, you know, women and children. So that's kind of interesting because coming from the island, you'd think they'd have enough resources to live, you know, that the land was providing for them. On the backside of that, they had strong teachings that supported warfare in, in coming all this way to get something that they didn't have. And it's, it's sort of um, ironic in a way because it, it's this whole thing about greed. You know, in life, that's just, that's just a fact. 
with, with humanity. You can have the best teachings about land and be very traditional and have many layers of teachings when it comes to how to apply that to life and pass it on to your kids. But there's still that human nature that wants to go and rob people. And we've seen that with even, you know, the, the, the whole gold rush thing, right? So how greed actually brought people from other lands to come here. By the late 1840s, more settlers started arriving in the area as outposts turned to settlements and settlements turned to towns. This led to the Oregon Boundary Dispute and the Treaty of 1848, establishing the present-day Canada-USA border at the 49th parallel, just 30 kilometers south of Pitt Lake. If you're keeping track, Slumak would have been in his 20s. Don says he would have been living in a multicultural region that included Katsi, Stolo, and many other First Nations, as well as native Hawaiian and Chinese people. I'll go back to the fact that there's 36 languages here in BC, about 194 different bands. Some interesting stories are because, uh, you know, some of the Hawaiians that came here came on, on their own. I haven't read anywhere or heard any stories where they were like slaves, that sort of thing. Most of them came here to work, you know, as loggers, as fishermen. A lot came for fishermen and a lot came here to look for gold on their own. And there was some that came here to work in, in the, um, you know, the, the fur trade, that sort of thing too. But um, mainly, mainly it was, it was, it was fishing and gold and the, the logging industry all the way down, up and down the Fraser River our Kanaka connections. And in fact, um, my wife, Gail, her great-grandfather was from the Big Island of Hawaii, and he came here for gold and, you know, ended up married into the Katsi family. And so there's also stories that I've heard from Katsi people that Slumak could have been a Kanaka. Louis B. could have been a Kanaka. Um, There's stories of words exchanged using the word Kanaka between uh, Louis B. and and Slumak. There's a lot of Hawaiians came over here. So yeah, that word Kanaka is is a is a blend between uh, a Hawaiian and a, and a First Nations person from here. Then in 1858, gold was discovered along the Fraser River. With that came an estimated 30,000 prospectors that poured into the district. Many from California, where the gold rush of 1849 had already petered out. Don says that changed everything for the Katsi community living in the area. The Katsi community are hardcore fishermen, and they spend a lot of time on the uh, on the ocean. They're probably some of the best fishermen on the coast. Like so, they're they're for real, and uh, so they're people of the ocean more more than people of the river. So when they were moved into the um, on the res, that of course was close to Pitt Lake and the Fraser River. They would typically fish into fall, and then they would preserve the fish either through uh, salting it, or if they, they had some uh, connections up, up in the canyon, they'd have some, some family that would dry their fish for them, or they smoked the fish. So smoking the fish is, was a pretty big, important way of processing it for the Katsi. And, um, of course, collecting berries and hunting. Once that is is done, so that would be, again, it, that, that happens from spring through fall. And then as soon as the, um, the snow starts to come up into the, the high country, into the mountains, and it starts to get cold down in the valleys, that was the, the green light to gather in the longhouses. 
So that would be a typical year for, say, the Catesy. And it's a shared experience by everybody, say, in the, in the lower mainland and southern Vancouver, the southern tip of Vancouver Island. So that would be a, a year hunting, fishing, gathering berries, drying meat, drying berries, processing fish and meat, and then preparing for the wintertime when it's time to travel and visit and take care of business. Not many of the traditional ways of living mattered to most of the prospectors who stampeded into the district in search for gold. Keep in mind, Canada was not even an independent country then. The government of Great Britain, in the name of Queen Victoria, rushed to impose control and order, no doubt with the intention of cashing in on the gold rush as well. The province of British Columbia was officially established that same year. Slumok would have now been in his 30s, a grown man, who had witnessed Europeans coming in first as traders, then as settlers, then as prospectors. He saw his home transformed, given a new name, and made subject to new rules. All the interactions were resource-based, so whether it's treaties or moving people onto reservations and the whole building a railway across Canada. I mean, the whole objective in order to accomplish some of these Western ways of doing business had to include moving our people out of the way. And the problem was accessing resources. So it's all about greed. You know, I mean, that's the way the economy works. If somebody's in your way, get them out of your way, whatever it takes. And uh, that thirst for power was something that the Western governments, they used whatever instrument it took, whatever method to get people out of their way to get to the resources. Having said that, there are some groups that were um, that bought into the Western way of thinking. And um, for the most part, people didn't have a choice to uh, accept this new way of life. And this life that people lived on the reserves was truly survival. You know, and part of that survival came about in the late 1800s when the Indian Act came into place and people were then forced to be wards of the government and depend on the government to survive because no longer could they get have access to the resources required to have a normal, you know, family life. The tradition, the, the land that was, was once used primarily to get what you need was now the land that was used by the Western governments, you know, for their greed. That's the way that came down. Settlers imposed new rules and values on those who had been there before their arrival. Taylor Starr, the truth seeker and researcher on our team on Dead Man's Curse, says that included the newfound worth of gold. Gold never meant anything to First Nations people. It was always copper because copper was more malleable than gold because gold you had to smelt down and do all that like forging fire kind of thing. But with copper, it was easy to meld and you can make it into like chest plates or put it in different jewelry, while gold was just never useful for us. As we mentioned earlier, gold was found along the Fraser River in 1858. And with that came 30,000 prospectors. Don Froze told us there was an immediate impact to the First Nations people in the region. And not only because their traditional lives were disrupted, our people along the Fraser had zero connection to gold. So 
The only connection I can think of is that the same trails that were used by our First Nations to go to the river, to go into the onto the land, were the same trails used by the prospectors, you know, to, to get to the gold fields and to get to, you know, the, the, the beaches. So there would have been interaction with the local fishermen and the people along the way. And I mean, that's well documented. Some of those interactions weren't very friendly because when you're busy collecting the food you need to make it through a winter and then all of a sudden you've got competition of with a, a, a lot of crazy white guys coming in and you know looking for gold right everybody's got gold fever i shouldn't say white guys it's probably <laughs> there's a few hawaiians in the mix <laughs> but anyways the point is is that there was there was um, poor communication and uh, people from like the, the european way of looking at things was like sort of uh you know, get out of my way. You're in my way. You know, I got to get to that gold. And uh, I don't care what you're doing uh, with your family. It's that whole way of looking at, at, at the world is what's in it for me. So that's the way the, the prospectors looked at it. And, and they had no intention of, of course, no intention of sharing. It wasn't, it wasn't about sharing their wealth. And, and having said that, I'm sure there was some, some pretty reasonable prospectors as well that were willing and we have record of that, of course, that communicated well with the local fishermen and the First Nations along the way. But for the most part, it was uh, the connection between the, uh, the grease trails and the, the settlers coming in was that the, those same trails were, were definitely used to, to access um, whatever the prospectors were looking for at the time. As Europeans moved into the area, you heard Don mention that settlers started to use the same trails that were used by First Nations people. Slumuk would have been very familiar with them, having grown up in the region, and that includes traditional trade routes. These routes were like highways for us today. When you're on the road today, on any important highway, you have road signs, traffic conditions, and even weather updates. Taylor Starr can read the land like no one else I know. She sees things that a seasoned hunter won't even see out there. It's actually quite amazing. And when we walk those traditional trade routes that Taylor mentions in our search for Slumok and his secret gold mine, we encountered pictographs and petroglyphs. She says those trade routes had pictographs, or rock paintings, that held important information for travelers, and they tell us a lot about the people and the land. So pictographs are the oral stories that we teach. So if it's a medicine man or some sort of like doctor that's up in the area, they would write their dreams or their visions or something they see on the land and basically put it on the rock. And what is used is uh, tamath, and tamath is our traditional paints. Mm. And it's made out of deer marrow, egg, egg um, fish roe or fish eggs. And the iron oxide that you find in like creek beds, like you see like the orange sort of like dirt almost in these old creek beds or on the side of the road, that's iron oxide. So we use that, deer marrow and the fish eggs. If you're having a tough time visualizing what these look like, don't worry. Taylor's here to describe one of the pictographs we've seen along the paths and trade routes in our search for Slumox gold mine. Some of the signs that we've seen along the way were one of the signs of, of someone in full regalia. And back then, it was common for people to be seen with full regalia. And this pictograph shows someone with a full headdress and a full bust, which is basically... Um, a plume of feathers that sit on the lower back of a dancer or shaman or um, a medicine man. 
So back then, they didn't put pictographs on there just for the sake of putting something on a rock. It would be meaningful to something. So whether that is a um, like a warning to whoever is going up in this area, or it could be meaning something that can be um, gathered in the area. But with the pictographs that we've seen, it would show that there is something either dangerous in the area or like a no trespassing sign. They're definitely like big roadway signs, like, you know, how you have the billboards on the side of the road kind of thing on the side of the highways. This is basically our version of like a billboard. We can't know for sure what trail Slumuk used during this time. If we did, we might be a little richer. Because if the legend and curse are true, Don says Slumuk might have. You know, he was obviously very goal-orientated. You know, when he found out that there was value to gold, I think of him as one of our early entrepreneurs he would have been a, a probably a really good poker player or something like that. You know, like he he was he he understood games and he he must have been um, very creative because he he made a point of figuring out how gold you know was so important. Now that we have a little bit more understanding of the land, the people, and what was happening over the course of Slumuk's life more questions keep popping up. We know that, traditionally, the Keitsi people never found much use for gold. But the European settlers were literally falling over themselves and everyone else to get at it. Just how contagious is gold fever? That it causes people to lie, cheat, steal, and kill to find gold. So you you find a little bit of evidence and then you research it. You find a little bit more evidence and then you research it more. And you just go down this loop of history that always brings you back to this lost gold mine that becomes an obsession. And what did the colonial government do to make sure that all the newfound treasure stayed out of the hands of the people who lived here for thousands of years? Could revenge on all these prospectors be the reason for the curse? Well, you know, you can't have that mindset going in this. This legend is going to take you down and it's going to punch you in the face. You know, this this is a this is a legend and history that it doesn't take any any prisoners. It's gonna it's gonna take you down if you don't just let it go with the flow. You have to let it go, you know, you have to flow with this legend. And did they even know back then that Slumak found gold? As we told you before, the official account and court records don't tell the full story. We know Slumak paid the ultimate price for his crime, but what drove him to do it? You know, Sumac, we consider him a very entrepreneurial person. He probably didn't give two rips about the Indian Act. He just did his own thing. That's next time on Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold. Thank you for joining me, and special thanks to Taylor Starr, Adam Palmer, and Don Froze for their work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalind Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural and heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 